listening to Returns on Investment. Brought to you by Impact Alpha. Live on tape from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, the show for pragmatic optimists who are creating financial value through positive social and environmental impact. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact at the financial technology firm LiquidNet. Today on Returns on Investment, we're featuring a conversation between David Bank, editor of Impact Alpha, and Dave Chen, who is CEO of Equilibrium Capital. Dave Chen's team at Equilibrium creates institutional-grade investments around sustainability, real assets in areas such as agriculture, wastewater, and energy efficiency. It's a powerful impact investment thesis. Let's jump right into the conversation between Dave Chen and David Bank. People say that you know sustainability as a compelling investment thesis won't have arrived until the big pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, other institutional investors buy in. Uh, and that has been sort of something that's out in the future. Is it possible that we're already starting to be there? Yeah, I, I think we are. And I think we're seeing a, a growing trend in that way. And I, and I think the big punchline is that Increasingly, the biggest change has been that sustainability is now seen as an economic shift and very clearly now seen at the very first phase as a risk issue to their portfolio and to the value of the assets that they hold in their portfolios. Let's take a step back. Equilibrium actually works with these players all the time, day in and day out. When you are talking to pension funds and and others, what kinds of questions are they asking you? You know, we look at some of the institutions, and I'll, and I'll talk about, I think, two sets of institutional drivers. We noticed about six or seven years ago that there were a small number of institutions, uh, and, and I would look at some of the Ontario pension plans, Ontario teachers as an example, who really started to ask the question, to what extent did climate change and to some degree some of the other demographic shifts that were taking place in the, in the world affect and create new risk categories that they may not have been previously thinking about. And it doesn't take long before you begin to ask the opposite question, which is what opportunities are there that arise from looking at climate and the impact on your portfolio. By and large, for the last five, six years, we've seen some of the leading portfolio and asset owners, including many of the reinsurance companies like Swiss Re, Munich Re, the folks that in some ways were most sensitive to these kinds of risk issues, really look at their assets and their portfolios and climate change through this risk lens. But I think most recently in the last uh, uh, couple of years, we've now seen sort of the next wave of institutions and pensions starting to ask not just the risk question, but also the opportunity question. And that is, to what extent can climate change and the opportunities of demographics and sustainable opportunities create investment opportunities that they ought to become aware of? And so with every risk comes an opportunity. All this being said, the conversation is increasingly couched not in the words of imperative or public policy or save the planet. They're now couched in terms of economic value, of asset preservation, of risk management, and of opportunity. 
you guys are focused on real asset strategy. That's different than venture capital. That's different than public equities, fixed income. Why real assets? We looked at real assets on a couple of dimensions. Number one, uh, if we believe that sustainability was an, an economic advantage across the various uh, components of process, end product, asset value, et cetera, et cetera, we saw that, that real assets were a direct way to express and therefore to surface that advantage uh, to investors. If you make the building better, if you make the land better, if you cultivate better, if you make the, the trees more productive, if they were worth more in terms of the crop, those were all direct attributes then that you could express through your advantage. Whereas buying a highly screened, very positive environmental social governance, ESG screened uh, or sustainable company, you're still buying it sort of indirectly, those attributes. So that was one. Number two, we like the categories because they're huge. They're fundamentals, and therefore we can build very significant portfolio sizes in those categories without becoming the market or the market maker. And that speaks to the issue of scale and building products for institutions. Third. And just to stop you on that, scale for institutions means how many zeros? Mm -hmm. Multi-billions. Got it. All right. And then the, the third reason was that in many cases, many of these categories were underpenetrated and underserved by both institutional capital and institutional investors. And so that meant you had room to grow. And so they're big, they're direct expressions, you have the room to grow. The fourth reason is that we do believe that the work that we do has to be, and the mission of our company is not only to generate uh, tremendous returns for our investors, it's through the tapping in of, of these attributes, it's also to make an impact and to hopefully leave or manage these assets for the long term and to leave them better than when we started. And so we saw real assets as another way, one of the benefits of it is that we can leave a lasting, additional, permanent, uh, semi-permanent, impactful set of attributes behind. Well, that's interesting. So in those very basic business considerations, they're coming around in some fundamental way to kind of where the activists were sort of trying to push them. So now it's not a bunch of activists telling them they have to do something. It's a bunch of managers of trillions of dollars in assets actually driving it and trying to figure out how to do it. And I think that, that part of the difficulty in understanding what's happening in sustainability is that, in fact, we're so used to the advocacy imperative vocabulary in the conversation of sustainable investing. And in some ways, you don't know when you've got the sale. And in many ways, the pension plans and many of the institutional investors are, are already there. And in a way, it's a talk to me in economic terms as opposed to the imperative term, because I already believe that. And, and if that's the case, is the capital really starting to flow towards a different kind of approach towards investment? I really do. I think so. I, I think that if you look at it, let's take the uh, Northern European uh, pension plans. There are a number of pensions with three and four letter acronyms that are all carving out fairly significant allocations to sustainability driven strategies. We all say that the capital markets can be some of the most powerful instruments and fastest responding instruments that we as a, a species have created. And I think that oftentimes we forget how fast this can work. You know, I always like to use the example of renewable energy here in the U.S. And that is that between the years 2000 and 2014, we've installed now in the U.S. somewhere around about 80 gigawatts of renewable energy, specifically uh, utility-scale wind. 
and that's a remarkable acceleration. And if you actually just do the back of the envelope map, and I'll even spot you the use of today's pricing, you know, that's three, four hundred billion dollars. On the low end, it might be a couple of hundred billion dollars. That's a lot of capital that moved into, quote unquote, a sustainable category within about 13, 14 years. And I trace that to the fact that the economics were made to work uh, in the early 2000s. And because of the financial tools that were being employed, we saw an incredible response from the capital markets, which is the inflow of capital. So I, I think that our solace here, our belief is that the minute that we start to understand that many of these sustainability trends are about economics and that the economics can be created and aligned in a way that generate market rates of return or risk management and or both, that these categories will see very, very significant inflows. That's fascinating. So when the economics and the financing get lined up, the capital markets respond quickly, as you say, and the things that seemed like unattainable goals in year one, by year 10, we blow through them, renewable energy standards and, and, and other things. Absolutely. So uh, calling the tipping points is the key to being ahead of this. And you've, you've said, I think people know now about renewable energy, yeah. but a couple others that you've talked about I think are not yet widely understood, water or even ag. So let's talk about ag a little bit. What are the trends in ag that are driving towards sustainability? At the risk of uh, forecasting, I'll actually answer a different category, and I think water's uh, a perennial favorite of ours. You know, we always glibly say, water is the next oil, water is the next oil, and water has all sorts of problems. The fact that it, by definition, is almost regional, or by watershed, uh, the transportation costs of it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the tipping point for water will take place when water becomes a priced commodity. And people will say, well, yeah, but Dave, you know, water's always been priced. Well, yes, but it's been priced by contract and by rights. And so, said another way, you can have a water contract in the greater western states that may be $60 an acre foot, but that's a contracted price. That's not a market set price. And the minute water uh, is thought of and is available as a priced commodity, all sorts of things throughout the entire value chain of water will change. So we'll have barrels of water priced like barrels of oil? That's already happening. And so if you think about what's subtly happened in the spot market for water in California, where, yes, by contract, you pay $60 an acre foot in some of these very, very old uh, rights to the spot market that was up in the uh, $2,600 an acre foot, $2,800 an acre foot, or sometimes more you're now starting to see market making take place. And what's actually, I think, really subtle is to watch what's happening in some of the Western states as they begin to look and adopt pieces of the Australian water markets rules. And as we begin to migrate towards market pricing of water, then we now have an investable category. And we now, you know, no pun intended, start to have a potentially liquid set of transactions and markets that take place in that. So we watch this very carefully as a firm and as an investor in that we've always known that water was valuable, but the big question was when and if and how long do you have to hold it and, and, and how does the pricing take place? And 
we believe that over the course of the next couple, three years, we're going to watch several of the Western states really move their regulatory regime. They already have started to where there become opportunities for market pricing of water and market pricing of the transportation of water, the creation of water, the reuse of water. And when that happens, the market will transform itself. Now, just taking it back to the institutional case, the pension fund guys are thinking through this as they look at future trends and under, try to understand what the world's going to look like? You know, I was asked this question uh, recently at, uh, at a, a pension institute conference, and the advice I gave was, first and foremost, I'd actually do what the Ontario folks did, and that is, first look at your uh, exposure, and it's not always readily evident where you have exposure. Second step is many of the opportunities, for example, in water are still, quote-unquote, too small or too early in, in their genesis to be, quote-unquote, institutional grade or of the scale that are necessary. But the reason I also like to think about uh, the renewable energy as an example and as a proxy is that happened remarkably quickly. And so when the financial structure was created in the early 2000s that allowed those that could take greatest advantage of the investment tax credit and the production tax credits and the uh, accelerated depreciation as part of the returns calculation, uh, you saw the market almost overnight, uh, overnight being a couple, three years, uh, transform into a highly accelerated, boring, replicatable, scalable marketplace. For a pension, I think it's important to assess your risk, but realize that, that the kinds of investable uh, strategies of the right scale are still uh, few and far between, but that you need to be monitoring this today because when this inflection happens, it probably will happen fairly quickly. It's interesting because you're talking about replicable, scalable which means established, boring, mature. Yep. On the other hand, some of the things that have to happen need innovation and technology and new ideas. So what's the balance between the new, the flashy new thing, and the boring, replicable, scalable thing? Well, you know, the reality is that institutional portfolios are probably, by definition, 80, 90%, 95% of the latter. And, and the reality is if you have a $100 billion or bigger, uh, which in today's world is not unusual, pension assets or, or pool of capital. You know, small and flashy tend to be, almost by definition, smaller asset categories. So you can put small amounts of capital to work, but you can't really move the needle in terms of what you're trying to achieve either in your risk-managed portfolio or in your high returns oriented or, or your, your, your risk-adjusted uh, you know, strategies. You can't put enough money to work. So it, by almost by definition, you have to be watching what's happening in the snap and sizzle in order to be able to be right there when this stuff starts to become highly replicable. Now, you've talked about long-term thinking pension funds in particular kind of have to be long-term thinkers by definition. They've got obligations to pay out to retirees, you know, on into the future 20, 30, 50 years out. So is long-term thinking starting to be a proxy for sustainability thinking in the institutional world? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think there is a relationship, though, but I don't think that I would use your exact wording. I think that, you know, in some ways, this seems like the most obvious thing. If you look at, for example, the 2013 version of the CalPERS protocol, 
you'll find this idea of long duration written out throughout the uh, the protocol. And just to really, be clear, this is the investment protocol from the California Public Employees Retirement System, one of the biggest pension funds in the country, if not the biggest, um, and they adopted a long-term thinking protocol, as you say. Just they embedded and, and called out specifically. Yes, thank you for that uh, clarification. <laughs> for our listeners. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, yes, we live in a world of acronyms and assumptions. Um, exactly. And I think that once you begin to accept and fully understand that you have a long-term obligation. And in fact, this is nothing new. This is one of the core concepts that we should have all learned in our finance education, which is the idea of duration matching. That uh, sustainability all of a sudden, I think, becomes couched and framed in a very different way. It no longer is about goodness and, again, the imperative. It now becomes an issue of Am I managing my assets in accordance with my desire for them to be a long-term hold, a long-term productive asset, a long-term resilient asset? And so all the attributes of sustainability become couched in productivity and asset value and value preservation kinds of words and concepts. And I think that's exactly what happens. And, uh, and so it's not that sustainability drives duration. It's that in many ways, I would say that embracing duration actually helps you understand why uh, sustainability uh, makes sense. So let me give you an example. If I do own a forest and I'm told that I can only keep it for three to five years, honestly, the rational strategy is to clear cut it. If I'm told that the reason that we want to own this forestry asset is that we want a producing asset for all of the things that we believe forestry will do for us, uh, which is that it allows us to manage cycles. If we decide not to cut this year because of a down cycle, well, the tree continues to grow. So we're basically growing not only commodity value, we're preserving our capital, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm told that that's the function that that asset is gonna play in our portfolio, and therefore, I have a long-lived, and I'll put 50 years on it or 100 years on it. Well, now I'm going to want to make sure that I employ, quote-unquote, the proper practices in the uh, management of that asset in order to preserve it so that it can be productive over that long period of time. So all of a sudden now, sustainability is no longer about hugging a tree. It's now about how do I make sure that I can keep cutting the trees in a way that allows me to generate income off that land sustainably, predictably, resiliently over a long period of time. In which case now you're probably managing your force in a very different way. Now, just to bring it all back around, if these trends are inexorable gaining momentum, heading towards tipping points. Are the activists who have been calling for these kinds of changes, I think you said earlier, may have missed the fact that the future is already here. What is the, what is the role for those kind of activists in that kind of... That well, there's always a role. I mean, I, I think that there's always problems. Uh, there are always uh, things that are overlooked. Uh, we're all learning. So there's, there's always going to be a role for... For, for activism and for those that uh, point out the inconsistencies, the ironies, maybe the wrongdoing. The watchdogging that the new practices are for real and not yeah. for show. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's always a role for that. Yeah. I do think, though, that there's an incredible irony and it's sort of a subtext to this whole thing, and that is that 
there is a tendency to associate sustainability with uh, almost a romantic notion. You know, better, small, handcrafted. And the thing that we wrestle with is the fact that sustainability is about a way of looking at the problem. It doesn't dictate whether it's small scale or large scale. If these problems that we're wrestling with are of, and people like to use these terms, you know, planetary scale, uh, well then you're going to have to have planetary scalable uh, solutions. And so looking at how these practices can be built into big, uh, we don't consider that to be a dirty word. And I think that's something that the activists oftentimes miss, and that is that uh, where we think that some of the nucleuses of the greatest amount of activity that's taking place in sustainability is in large corporations and is in the large pools of capital. But we also have a tendency to look at big and associate sometimes the word bad. And, and I think that's you know, as investors, it's actually very, very important, I think, for you to, to, to look beyond these, uh, uh, sometimes the more romantic notions that are oftentimes associated with words like organic, sustainable, renewable, reusable. You know, the, the, the reality is that uh, it's the second wave of renewable energy that is associated with rooftops. Uh, the first wave of renewable energy was really driven by large utility-scale wind farms. Mm -hmm. Scale, big. Uh, we built that 80 gigawatts, and we built the 25%, and uh, and ultimately it'll be 33 or 50% of California. That initial 25 was built on the backs of large utility scale. So big is not always bad. So the future may come, and it may not look exactly like what those activists were thinking. Of, yeah. But yeah. it will be sustainable. Well, again, I point to the inconsistent logic that we have planetary scale problems and opportunities driven by sustainability, climate change, population, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes we are most attracted to opportunities that are smaller. And for us, our challenge at Equilibrium, where we have cast our lot, is to find highly scalable institutional grade uh, investment strategies that encapsulate and express as a set of returns these sustainable advantages for institutional investors. So that means strategies where an institutional investor can deploy 25, 50, 100, 200 million dollar uh, or more size investments. Last thing I want to ask you, Dave, is you've talked about problems at a planetary scale, solutions at a planetary scale, you've talked about accelerating momentum, how fast capital flows can shift towards new approaches if things get lined up right. When you boil all that down, Optimist or pessimist about the future? I'll tell you what we look for in our people. And then I'll answer about me. And I say this jokingly. We look for uh, someone that has had all the optimism beaten out of them and the romance of saving the planet beaten out of them. And yet they are still committed enough, determined enough that they still want to do this. And that's my way of, of saying, look, the best and brightest minds have been dealing with these sustainable issues for a long time. If you look at the, the history of some of these writings, they trace back 100 years. So it's not lack of commitment. It's not lack of IQ. So it's not like the best minds haven't been addressing this. Have you had the optimism beaten out of you? Uh, yes, but we're still determined. 
I can't imagine doing anything other than what we're doing. And I think that the folks in our company, I think, share that. Uh, we think it's a great economic opportunity. We think it's, uh, it's one of the greatest callings, one of the greatest opportunities to make a difference. And both as, a, as an investment professional and, and you know, just as a member of, of our community. So I, I don't think we're optimistic. I think we're determined. Going down with a fight. We're going down with a fight. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment from Impact Alpha. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, leave a rating, which helps other people find us. For more coverage of the Impact Investing Marketplace, please visit impactalpha.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Impact Alpha. If you have any feedback, please send us an email at info at impactalpha.com. Special thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Until next time, this has been Returns on Investment.